Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. Is inflation re-accelerating? Will rising oil prices push central banks to raise rates further? Is a recession now unlikely? And are markets overvalued? These are the meaty questions we grappled with this episode. As for what's not priced in, recession remains a risk the market continues to underprice at its peril. Hello and welcome back. I think now this is the uh, the 17th episode of What's Not Priced In. It's a little bit hard to say these days because you've been um, making quite a lot of interesting uh, bonus episodes on the topic of net zero. So by the way, if you guys haven't checked those videos out, please do and there'll be more coming. But Greg, welcome. How are you? I'm I well hear Djokovic. Through. Djokovic has won another Grand Slam. How are you feeling? It was it was it was never in doubt, mate. Um, <laughs> well, it was a little bit, but uh, oh, I it was it was with Medvedev. He beat him two years ago. So exactly, and and Medvedev played a cracking match against Alcaraz to get there. But I guess he played his uh, played his <laughs> Grand Final in the semifinal. Yeah. So, um, but more importantly, we got the kickoff of the uh, NFL season and uh, the. Um, Buffalo Bills have started off with a loss against New York Jets, so I wasn't too happy with the start, but uh, long season ahead, so looking forward to that one. While there's a bit of a lull in the tennis, but there's no no tennis happening now until I think the Labor Cup in a couple of weeks, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we go into the the end of the the season, couple of indoor tournaments in in Europe, which is uh, uh, always always exciting for us tennis buffs. So looking yeah. forward to it, mate. Well, do, do, you, do you think the uh, the goat debate is settled now? Well, it should be. Um, I don't think there's any, you know, there's no genuine sort of uh, reason to, to, you know, say that Djokovic doesn't deserve it. I mean, the guy's 36 mm. and he's playing probably better than he's ever played before. You know, generally most people start to wane a little bit when they mm. get to that age and, and, you know, old father time gives him a tap on the shoulder and says it's probably time to leave. And this guy's getting better, which... Mm. You know, in tennis, to to win a to win a Grand Slam, you've got to win seven matches, mm. best of five sets over two weeks. Like, there's probably no more grueling sport mentally and physically to be able to do that. And you know, if you're not a tennis fan, you probably don't understand or don't think about that progression mm. over a, over a two week period. I actually thought Djokovic might not be a chance, given that he played. Uh, a very intense final against uh, Alcaraz in the Cincinnati yeah. Open, which was just ten days before, and that was a really, really you know tough game of tennis. Mm. And and often these things take a while to mm. recover from. But he's gone and won a U.S. Open, uh, you know, l- less than two weeks after that, which is just incredible. Speaks to his physical fitness and his mental mental strength more than anything. So uh, definitely a goat from uh, from my perspective. Yeah, and maybe if we can bridge it back to to invest, I think I was in his post match conference. He was sort of saying that he's always trying to eke out gains every year, so he's always trying to improve something in his game, uh, and that's why he's sort of been able to keep ahead of the competition. So for any for the investors, he's out definitely there, got an edge. He's definitely exactly. got an edge. Yep. We we'll always have to find that edge. Uh, well, maybe bringing it back to more mundane things like like inflation. I think obviously. We're recording this on a Thursday afternoon, and the U.S. latest U- U.S. inflation data came out. Um, obviously, 
We'll focus on the core inflation. Core inflation rose 0.3%, pretty much as expected, and it's now down on an annual basis from 4.7 to 4.3. Obviously, some headlines focused on head, headline inflation, and that was obviously boosted by rising energy prices. And of course, over the last few weeks, uh, oil has definitely risen, and that has made some people worried that we may see a reacceleration of inflation in our own uh, fat tail bubble. We've been sort of, some of us have been saying that, you know, is this a risk? Is there a material risk that inflation will reaccelerate? And what will that mean for markets? So maybe we can start off our discussion with that, what, what you made of it. Yeah, I think uh, that the common view is that rising energy prices equals rising inflation. And there is some truth to that. But I think what you need to do is is drill down and look at the monetary aggregates to work out whether there is fuel for that to happen. So um, the way I sort of think of it is that for a given amount of money supply, if oil prices and energy prices increase, then that takes away spend, and, and you know th- these are essential uh, essential spending. So you know you need to you need to f- fill up your car with petrol to get to work or to travel and and get your goods and you know go to shops and all that sort of stuff. So these are this is like a, a very basic level of of spending. It's not discretionary. Yep. So if you've got a hundred bucks in your pocket each week for that, and your fuel bill goes from 50 bucks to 70 bucks, then your leftover spending has gone from 50 to 30. Mm-hmm. So you're, it, it's actually deflationary in many ways. Now, if you can't pass on, um, if you, you can't go to your employer and say, I need more money, uh, if employers can't pass on the higher costs of transport, all those sorts of things, then it's going to show up in uh, less demand. It's going to show mm-hmm. up in, in margins contracting. Um, so I think the the common refrain at the moment is that our energy prices are rising again and uh there's many reasons for that and this is why we've talked about you mentioned at the very start the uh interviews that we've been doing on the the net zero insanity stuff is that we are uh, making it very difficult to get new supply of traditional fossil Mm -hmm. fuels onto the market uh, at the same time as we're trying to uh, electrify our our grid um, and we're not replacing uh, say coal-fired power stations with the requisite amount of renewables we need, and when we are adding renewables, they are very intermittent mm-hmm. uh, and, and less reliable. So we are creating a situation where higher energy prices over time are not certain because nothing's certain, but are becoming a higher and higher probability. So mm-hmm. energy prices, in my view, will continue to rise. Now, clearly, we're going to have corrections along the way, but I think, um, and we'll show you a chart. Uh, later, the Brent um, crude and the international uh, mm. oil benchmarks are breaking out from their corrections that they experienced throughout 2022 and 2023 and are now starting to look really, really bullish. But does that mean we're going to get another infl- inflationary breakout? I mm. don't think so. And I want to show some charts to explain why, because as I said, this is a it's, a, it's an important um important thing to understand. So uh, let me just show you what I mean. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me know if this chart, you can see this chart. It's a, it's a Fred chart from the um, St. Louis, uh, I think it's the St. Louis uh, Board of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, um, I can see it now. It shows M2, which is, a, a I guess, a basic uh, money supply aggregate. 
mm-hmm. uh, and then and that's in the green, and then it shows uh, different types of uh, it's called personal consumption expenditures, but they're different types of inflationary uh, indicators in the U.S. So the one thing to notice here is that M2 shot up in response to the COVID stimulus, um, and the gauge for that is on the left hand side, and you can see that it says percent change from a year ago. So M2 uh, was growing at a rate of over 25% in probably around late 2020, mm-hmm. early 2021. Now, we often wouldn't be an episode of what's not priced in with without talking about uh, the lags of monetary policy. We should um, have a, a live track every time you, you mention it. Exactly, exactly. Um, so uh, it goes without saying that we're seeing those lags in this chart and the lagged effect of inflation Inflation uh, flows through to the system. I'm not exactly sure. I, I couldn't. I, I didn't have the detail of this chart to see what the exact lag mm-hmm. was. But let's say it's looking at about you know 12, 12 months or so, maybe eighteen months um, of when inflation peaked to when the growth in M two peaked. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you can see that M two has come down very, very sharply in this chart. Um, it's gone from 25% annual growth to now negative growth. And just to give you another read on that, uh, I got this from uh, the Mises Institute. Uh, they have a uh, an indicator called the true money supply, which mm-hmm. is even running at a more negative level, it includes a few other things that uh, standard M2 readings don't. Mm-hmm. But as you can see, these the monetary aggregates, thanks to monetary tightening over the past um, 12 months or a little bit more than 12 months now has really come down and it's, it's down into negative levels, which virtually never happens. Yeah. Um, so going back to this chart here, what the people, you know, the people who are saying higher energy prices are going to translate into higher inflation yeah. are suggesting that these inflation indicators are going to continue to go up. But my argument is if M2 stays in a contractionary mode or you know, year-over-year year negative growth or at least year-over-year year very low growth, it's very hard to get a re-acceleration, a sustainable mm-hmm. re-acceleration of inflation. And I think the greater risk here is that higher energy prices are going to subtract from discretionary spending and make it even, I, I guess, put more... Uh, pressure on consumer demand because mm-hmm. you, you, you're going to get a situation where interest rates are staying high and the, the Federal Reserve especially and even you know our uh, Reserve Bank will be concerned about mm. the rising cost of energy and they're going to say, okay, well, we keep uh, interest rates high because we don't want to stoke, uh, you know, stoke the demand for that and fair enough. So you're going to have higher interest rates or staying higher for longer higher energy prices, which are going to act as a constraint, another constraint mm. on demand. Uh, and I think that will put downward pressure, continue to put downward pressure on inflation, especially core inflation. So obviously headline inflation will still be impacted by the energy numbers, but the central banks will look at those core numbers. And I think that those core numbers will continue to come down. The other uh, thing just to point out here, this is bank credit by all commercial mm-hmm. banks in the US and then that's now running year over year negative which very very rarely happens it only happened here back in the 2008 yep. uh, credit crunch so uh, 
there's a couple of ways that money is created and gets into the financial system and into the economy, and that's through banks creating credit. And banks are clearly not creating credit. Credit growth is is um, running year on year negative at the moment. So, uh, and the last one, just to show here, to uh, give you another indication of that there's no sort of inflationary impulse, is that you've got Federal Reserve. This is the Federal Reserve um, bank credit that's running negative on a year on year over year basis as well. So this huge spurt here was post COVID. The inflationary mm-hmm. breakout that we saw was in response to this in the same way that um, we saw a, a COVID sort of really high uh, rate of bank credit growth and uh, the money supply. So all, all these things contributed to the high inflation we've got now, but inflation, uh, as we, we often say, is a lagging economic indicator. And uh, you're going to see, in my view, inflation continuing to come down in response to mm-hmm. this these fall in, in the monetary aggregates. And that's despite what, um, I'll just stop sharing, despite what, uh, you know, people might think about mm-hmm. higher energy prices. I just think that you need uh, money supply growth in order to fuel uh, h- higher prices and the ability of companies to uh, pass on higher costs. And, you know, we, we've seen that in the past 12 months. Companies have been able to pass on mm-hmm. higher costs and that's why we've seen the inflation but we've talked about in previous episodes how people's excess savings yep. are starting to run out. So I think people's ability to absorb those cost increases has been made easier by the fact that they've had excess savings and they've just you know they've said, mm-hmm. okay, well I've got uh, I've got the money to to um, continue to pay for those um, higher costs. Companies everywhere, insurers especially. I mean, if you've had an insurance bill recently, the the amount that they've passed on in terms of higher costs and people Mm. simply have to absorb it because if you've got three different insurers all putting up their prices by 10 and 20%, there's not much you can do about it. Uh, But it'll get to a point soon where these savings are starting to run down. And we saw it in last week's uh, national accounts. I think the saving rate Mm. is now down in Australia. I think it went from, I don't know the exact number. I think it went from 3.7 to 3.4% to its lowest Mm. point since June, 2008. So there's a, not a lot of savings left for people yeah. to continue to um, to continue to pay for companies rebuilding margins. So uh, yeah, I, I wonder whether companies will continue to be able to uh, pass on price increases, mm. and quite possibly they will now have to start to sacrifice margins in order to uh, you know keep the keep the demand side going. So yeah. Yeah, and I don't think it's um, it's it's ever as simple as oh, oil prices are going up, therefore uh, headline inflation is going to reaccelerate here. I think um, I was sort of reading from the RBA's research bulletins, and they sort of linked out to this this research paper in their own internal team that sort of tried to model inflation risks and impl- inflation drivers, and they've found that if you focus on oil, it's 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 too much of a noisy indicator for where inflation is going and they did some regression and analyses and they just found that it's it's just too hard to predict where inflation is heading based on oil prices and it's it's never a massive proportion to the CPI the oil prices so just yep. because the all of the news headlines sort of focus on oil is rising and therefore we might see a reacceleration inflation may not necessarily be be true and like you were saying it's just so much more complicated the global economies are so intertwined and there's all of these 
different interactions. So just focusing on one factor is is just probably oversimplified. And the other thing to take into account as well, I think, is that um, there's two ways that you can uh, interpret rising energy prices and rising oil prices. One is that in an expanding economy, uh, you've got increased demand and that is driving the price higher. The other, and I think there's, this is partly behind, probably more behind the, the recent run-up in prices and I think will continue to support prices in the years to come is the, the supply side of the equation. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're in a situation now where supply is very constrained. Uh, you're not getting capital uh, expenditure into new exploration. We're not finding mm-hmm. uh, significantly uh, new uh, oil fields or... or um, energy supplies in order to continue um, catching up or meeting demand. And I think demand read somewhere recently that demand is at record uh, highs in terms of 100 million barrels a day, which is up there with uh, the the peak. So demand's still strong. You got supply constraints uh, and that is, is forcing prices up. So, I mean, even just a situation where everyone who's listening to this will go, you know, who fills up at the petrol station knows that, Petrol prices in Australia didn't go down with the mm. oil price. I mean, that you know went down a little bit, but we are still paying a lot uh, yeah. for, for for the petrol prices. And part of the reason is we just don't have any uh, capacity, refining capacity mm. in Australia. We've got two refineries here where we we used to have four or five a few mm. years ago. We import uh, probably seventy five percent of our refined fuels uh, from you know, places in Southeast Asia and Singapore, mm. uh, Korea, stuff like that. Uh, and the problem is, and, and this is why I keep banging on about this this net zero stuff, is that when Western leaders have these policies that are all about going green, mm. no one is going to spend the billions of dollars that are needed on new refining capacity. Mm. I mean, maybe they'll do it in India or China because that is you know, integral to their yep. growing economies and they need to do that. But they're going to look after their own economies first and export any surplus that that we may need. But you're certainly not going to get those investments in the US. You're not going to get them in, in Australia. But our economy, if we're still going to grow, we're going to need that refined fuel. We're mm. not all going to be able to you know, park our cars in garages and, and charge them up uh, in the middle of the day from the sun. Mm. Like it's just not not going to happen. Yet that's essentially what our um, longer term mm. plan is for our en- energy needs. So you're seeing r- rising petrol prices are not happening because of increased demand. They're happening because of supply constraints yeah. and that we're not building more capacity to uh, get prices down. And, mm. you know, that's part, part of the problem. So it's not necessarily going to feed into inflation, but it will feed into more pressure on the consumer um, and more, uh, you know, less capacity mm-hmm. to spend. Yeah. Well, well, speaking on pressures on the consumer, I thought we could maybe um, pivot and talk about maybe uh, recent uh, things that I've seen uh, from forecasters and uh, other central banks and even hedge fund managers that sort of think that, I think the market overall is now positioning to this uh, stance that there probably is not going to be a recession and the central banks in Australia and the US and other advanced economies will probably pull off a soft landing. And I think um, recently, I'm just going to read out some some things that I've noticed in the media. So there was a Bank of America monthly survey and it found, uh, I think in August, that six out of 10 fund managers 
think that the Fed is done lifting rates. Uh, and in July, it was um, nine out of 10 were saying that the Fed is not yet done. So that's quite a big change in quite a short amount of time. Uh, but on the other hand, also, uh, there's less worries about the economy from businesses themselves. So I think um, only 62 companies in the S&P 500 cited recession in earnings calls uh, from June 15th through to the end of August. And that was down from 113 during the previous reporting period and well below the peak of 238 uh, in the summer of 2022. So businesses are citing recessions less and less. Fund managers think that uh, the Fed has done hiking rates. Uh, over in Australia, the mood is similarly uh, buoyant. I think um, I think you sort of tweeted this out. I think earlier today uh, there was an article from the Australian Financial Review uh, where I think Westpac chief executive and the NAB chief executive both said that they don't think a recession in Australia is likely, and that things are softening, but not so much that it's going to be to a dangerous degree. I think the National Australia Bank Chief Executive Ross McEwen said to yesterday, we just don't see that there will be a recession in Australia. It's just quiet at the moment. Uh, we need, But we do need a lot more on productivity. So what do you make of that? Well, it's, they're probably fair comments. Uh, but to be honest, I don't think I've ever heard a bank uh, CEO say that they think a recession's yep. likely or coming. Um, <laughs> yep. That's just not what they do. Yep. Uh, but, you know, it's it's fair comments. I'm just trying to think of the actual numbers. Um, the GDP numbers came out last week yep. for uh, the, the year and the three months to June 30th. If you subtract the export sector or the, um, yep. I guess, the, the mining sector essentially, then the, the domestic economy went backwards. Um, yep. Nominal GDP contracted in the in the June quarter, so we are in recessionary like conditions. Yeah. But thanks to uh, the volume of exports and the still good prices that we're getting, uh, that's helping helping the overall GDP numbers. Yep. So, um, and so th- that has to be taken into account. The fact that um, the Australian mining sector is is so strong is definitely something that will generate uh, enough national income mm-hmm. to probably keep us out of recession. And if you look at you know, the Aussie yield curve, it inverted slightly a few mm-hmm. months ago, and then it uninverted. So it was getting to that point where it was thinking, you know, we, we might get a slowdown. But yep. um, so the comments are fair, like it is quiet. And I think there are certain parts of the economy that are definitely recessionary. Um, what you're not well, I think seeing... technically, I think some people would say we're in a per capita recession where the... Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, just to explain that, you know, we've got pretty strong population growth, which uh, boosts up the headline number. But when you divide the growth by the increase in population on a per capita basis, uh, things are looking a bit a bit rough. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Um, but, you know, going back to your initial comments about what, what people are saying and what they're thinking, I mean, th- this is part of the reason why we do this podcast. We try to sort of look beyond um, the headlines and try to get an understanding of why these surveys are saying what they're saying and you know the old saying is that markets make opinion and um if the if the the stock market is telling you a certain something Mm. um then you tend to believe it and you just say okay well the stock market hasn't really Mm. corrected or the stock market's telling us that things are pretty strong so therefore um let's go for the soft landing option or let's go for the you know it's not going to be as bad as expected option which you know is is completely understandable but 
the point is, you, you, I think we're in a, probably a transition phase and we've mm-hmm. talked about this before in that a lot of people are scratching their heads as to why this big increase in monetary policy hasn't really done mm-hmm. as much as what people would have probably expected given the huge yeah. increases in rates in both the US and Australia. What, why hasn't that had an effect? And it goes back to the fiscal side of things. There was a huge fiscal stimulus mm-hmm. around that time as well, and that takes time and has mm-hmm. taken time to work its way through the economy. So we talked, I think, two weeks ago on this podcast mm-hmm. that the US, there was some data out from the San Francisco Fed yeah. that said the US consumer or household sector was pretty much going to be out of excess savings by the end of yeah. this month. So going into the last quarter of this year is going to be interesting in terms of the ability of the consumer to keep keep spending. And I think that's mm-hmm. been, and, and, and in saying that, the... Um, the labour market to, to remain mm. remain strong yep. as well. So uh, that would be my um, my query over whether this soft landing um, plays out. And then there was a, a really interesting comment that I I'm, I'm a fan of uh, mm-hmm. Dave Rosenberg, um, who I subscribe to. He's a very experienced economist. He's been around for a long time, um, mm. and. He's a real contrarian. Like he, he doesn't. He, he's not swayed by uh, consensus opinion. Really, mm-hmm. sort of looks at the data, looks at the detail. So, uh, I pulled out a quote from his research. Uh, it's, it's a fair bit of words on here, so I'll just, I'll mm-hmm. just read through it. Um, but I thought this was really interesting, and it says, "And for those who don't see a recession, just remember the traditional lag from the Fed's first volley to the time of the recession historically was not twenty-two minutes, twenty-two hours, twenty-two days, or twenty-two weeks." more like 22 months. That puts Q4 of this year or Q1 of next year in play. All soft landings, and they can easily last a year, think 1989, 2000 or 2007, are bridges from the expansion to the contraction phase of the cycle. They are a transition period and they are not permanent. Either the economy somehow reaccelerates with looming fiscal tightening and the lagged impact from the Fed in terms of what still lies ahead makes that unlikely, or it downshifts into recession. Then he just says, soft landings don't hang around uh, to perpetuity. Uh, and the only three times the Fed did pull off a soft landing in the post-World War II era, in the mid-60s, the mid-80s, and the mid-90s, was when it stopped tightening once the yield curve looked poised to invert. This Volcker-esque Fed felt the need to keep on going, not just keep on going after the curve inverted, but hiked 75 basis points after the three regional bank failures last winter. So basically he's saying um, there's no such thing as a soft landing. Mm. The soft landing is effectively a transition from growth to uh, recession. And uh, Dave Rosenberg reckons we'll be in recession in the fourth quarter of this year or the first quarter of next year. And if we're not, he's... uh, I think he said he's going to admit that the business cycle doesn't exist anymore. So just while I'm on this screen, I just wanted to show you another uh, chart that sort of talks or or puts another uh, slant on the transition period. This is a timeline of the CNN Fear and Greed Index, Mm -hmm. which we often talk about uh, on this show. Now, we sort of had this up showing in June and July, the CNN Fear and Greed Indicator was in constant extreme greed uh, phase. And we're sort of talking about how you know, that was a sign that markets were overstretched. There was a lot of momentum, mm-hmm. a lot of fear of missing out. Uh, and, and this was one of the longest periods of extreme greed that I can remember seeing in mm-hmm. this indicator. 
but since then it's dropped and it dipped into uh, it dipped into fear mm-hmm. uh, mode and it's bumped up and it's now in neutral mode. So if we're talking about a transition period that we're in now and perhaps moving into in the final quarter of the year, then my view is that we could be going from extreme fear here down into neutral and then potentially down into an extreme greed. Uh, sorry, I think I got that mixed up. Extreme yeah. greed up here, down into neutral, into yep. extreme fear down here as the next few months unfold. Could be completely wrong about that and not sort of, you know, saying that's a prediction. Uh, I'm just suggesting that that is, is quite possible. Given the scenario David Rosenberg's pointed out, uh, and maybe we can also talk a bit about what the stock market's priced in and what the mm. valuations are at the moment, because that's certainly not uh, not on the cards, I don't think. Yeah, I think we should definitely. I was going to ask, given that you know Rosenberg's quote, and then I think maybe the market is definitely a bit more optimistic than what, for example, someone like Rosenberg would think. So clearly, do you think the market is not pricing in the threat of recession highly enough? Absolutely not. Um, Again, you know, if you look at the S&P 500 uh, forward estimates, which I looked at earlier this week, uh, it's on a PE of, uh, I think it was 18, 18.75 times, yep. which equates to an earnings yield of, write it down here, 5.33%. So what that means is uh, when you're buying the S&P mm. 500 here, based on these forward earnings expectations, which, by the way, are forecast to grow mm. in 2024, 12% on 2023 numbers. So the market's actually thinking the consensus the consensus numbers are predicting earnings per share increases next year. Mm-hmm. And you and you're trading on um, 18 times, nearly 19 times forward estimates, which is mm-hmm. an earnings yield of 5.33%. Now if you compare that to the 10-year bond yield, which is a bit of a proxy for the risk-free rate, which is 4.3% you're getting 1% equity risk yep. uh, premium, which you know is very, very skinny and it's not offering any, mm-hmm. it's, it's offering virtually no additional yep. reward for the risk taken. So in my mind, the stock market uh, is, is very overvalued um, yep. if that scenario of slower growth. And by the way, the higher energy prices feed in into that negative outlook. Yep. Uh, if, if, if energy prices are rising because of supply constraints and not because of demand, um, then that's a negative. Rising energy prices absorb market liquidity mm-hmm. because the oil market is such a huge market. Um, if you want to, uh, any, any liquidity that's in the market that needs to be devoted to uh, buying, storing, trading oil it's going to soak up more yep. liquidity than previously um, at $90 or $100 a barrel than it did at 70 um, so all these things are not necessarily bullish for the market so you know risk and reward i just think the yep. market is 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 all risk and no reward at this point yeah and i think for example you were saying you didn't want to make a recession prediction but in these situations uh, you don't even necessarily have to because like you said it's all about uh, just seeing where the risk re- lies in terms of reward. So clearly the market is maybe pricing in a probability for a recession that's too low for you. And therefore, with the with how expensive the market is right now, it just doesn't really make sense because the, the reward just isn't there given the risk. So you don't necessarily yeah. have to just uh, make a hardline prediction and really stand by it. It's just more just assessing where the risks lie. And right now, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's not it's not as if you're sitting around on the sideline waiting for a recession before yeah. you, you you invest. And you know, as we often point out, it's it's a it's a market of stocks, not a yeah. stock market. And there's always individual opportunities which are priced a lot more attractively than the market in general. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm not saying that you should be out of the market waiting for this mm-hmm. recession to hit. All I'm saying that on a general sense or in a, on yeah. a, as a general core, given where the risks lie. The market is not pricing those in. So what's not priced in is a slowdown that is more likely than what the market uh, is expecting. So, um, yeah, it, it's just a matter of uh, keeping some powder dry, making sure that um, if that scenario does play out, then you're in a position to, to take advantage of it. And one thing I'd, I want to sort of look at when you're thinking about taking advantage of stuff mm-hmm. is – uh, sentiment indicators and, and yeah. when sentiment gets quite quite low um, you know that's when that's when you can to get some pretty good opportunities yeah and what, what do you measure what, what indicators do you use to sort of figure out if if sentiment is too low or too extreme a whole bunch of stuff I mean you know we, we would look at magazine indicators at that time you'd look at CNN fear and greed index yeah. uh, the investors intelligence readings which come out um, yeah. every week newspaper headlines, general vibe of, uh, you know, just the way that, um, and, and that's one of the things that I, I try to do when, when, when things get really scary is you yeah. try to detach yourself from that, from that emotion and just try to really dispassionately look at a whole bunch of different indicators and say, mm-hmm. okay, well, it's like you want to try and stand above it rather than be involved in it because, when you're in, when you're when you're really in the midst of it, it's very hard to uh, rationally assess where you are in the situation. And we're not yet there yet. And I think the CNN fear and greed is a good indicator. We're in a neutral phase. Mm-hmm. We're in a phase. And let let me let's just have a look at our market, right? Like the um, uh, the ASX two hundred has literally mm-hmm. just done nothing. Like it's yeah. just, it's just going up and down and up and down and up and down. And it's almost lulling people into this false sense of, maybe it's not even a false sense, but just, you know, people are sort of dying of boredom out there. It's just mm. the market is just not really offering anything at all. It's very trendless. And generally the way these things resolve themselves is that they 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 break up out of the, the range or they break down or maybe it just continues going sideways mm. for some time. But when you sort of really look at this from a longer term perspective like i've just really outlined the the trend over the last let's say nearly a year this is going back to um november last year or here just when we broke up yeah early november last year so we're not too far away from just a year of sideways but you know we go back to this point this is 12th of august 2021 Mm. where the market hit a high and we haven't revisited that so we've just been in this long sideways move now my sort of feeling is that we could revisit these lows uh, in the months ahead, especially mm-hmm. if the U.S. economy unfolds the way I think it might. Um, in which case, I think that'd be you know interesting buying territory around there. I think mm-hmm. you get a lot of panic, and you'd have a lot of people that have probably bought and accumulated around here yeah. panic and and give up and just get out of the market. Um, I had a quick look at the small lords, and I thought. This was an interesting little development on this chart as well. Um, the small lords have underperformed the the, the ASX 200. Uh, if you, I'll just pull this back a little bit. So this is where the, the peak of the 
yep. markets were in uh, what was it 2021 big big correction it's really hasn't rebounded and and this consolidation has been in a uh, like a i guess a wedge formation and often these things resolve themselves by breaking up or mm-hmm. or down as well early stages this might reverse in the next few days but it's just worth noting that it is starting to get a little bit of pressure on the downside here and is, mm-hmm. is breaking down is that a leading indicator for the bigger stocks don't really know but it, it has been difficult for the smaller end of the market and when you mm-hmm. look at the small odds relative to the asx 200 you can just see that's just you know the bigger stocks have outperformed the smaller stocks so i do think and i read this a lot you know people are saying that there's value in the small caps yeah. and that's where the opportunities are I've no doubt that's the case. I guess the question is, how much lower do they go, and, mm-hmm. and when does the outperformance start? And you know, from my from my perspective, you, you don't want to take that bet too early, um, mm-hmm. but it is worth looking at or keeping an eye on. Just some other um, things while we're on the charts, I thought we could look at. This was the the chart of the oil price that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. So it came. Uh, let me just pull this back a little bit. So. You can see here this line is a reasonably important mm-hmm. support resistance line over the years, um, yep. and it corrected right back down. And it always found buying support coming in just above there, mm-hmm. and now we're sort of starting to trend higher again and mm-hmm. pulling away. Just to be cautious, though, in the short term, whoops, in the short term, it is overbought. So this is a short-term momentum mm-hmm. indicator. Uh, it is getting up towards the 80 level, which which traditionally suggests that, you know, prices are overbought and a correction yep. is probably not far away. So, but from a longer term perspective, the um, oil market looks really, really strong there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I just wanted to point out, we do look at this uh, each week or, or often, this is uh, TIPS, which yep. is the inverse of the real interest rate. So real interest rates are, effectively back at those highs of where mm-hmm. they were last year. Now, that is clearly going to be contractionary or yeah. difficult for an economy to grow when you've got real interest rates this high. They haven't been this high for over a decade and there's a mm. lot more debt in the economy. So there is there is a fair bit of pain in this level of real interest rates. Now, the reason why that pain hasn't been reflected in the economy, as we talked about, was the lingering stimulus effects mm. from uh, from the fiscal policy but if if we're correct in thinking that really starts to to uh, leak out of the economy in the final quarter and into next year then these higher real rates are going to um, play a much bigger role which brings me to I guess my main point of what's not priced in I remember months ago we were saying the higher for longer interest rate yep. regime you know it's that's what central banks are going to be looking at doing. And now that's become almost a consensus view, right? Higher for longer. Mm-hmm. Everyone's talking about it because mm-hmm. of this feeling of sticking inflation, because of energy prices. And everyone thinks, okay, well, the Fed's going to keep rates higher for longer. My feeling is that whenever anything becomes consensus, you have to start mm-hmm. thinking, okay, what's the other, what's another explanation? Because yep. consensus never really lasts for long. Consensus always shifts to another consensus. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to try to be ahead of that consensus. So my feeling is that if we're right about this fiscal, mm-hmm. lack of fiscal stimulus, still high monetary policy, the lagged impacts of it, is going to send inflation lower and it's going to force the Fed to cut 
sooner than the, what the market currently thinks. So the higher for longer will be, oh shit, there's a recession. We've got to yeah. cut rates and we've got to cut rates pretty, pretty quickly. And uh, what are we, we're, we're sort of mid-September at the moment. Yep. Let's give it maybe two months to three months and see whether that view starts to shift because these things do take time. But that would yep. be one uh, non-consensus view, what's not priced in view that I think people should really start to be considering. How do you take advantage of that? Well, let's look at the gold price because gold mm-hmm. often moves um, in ways that uh, are opposite to real interest rates. Now, Gold's actually in a bit of a stealth bull market here. It bottomed last year. It's rallied. It's pulled back. No one's really interested in gold. You know, you very rarely read about it. You very rarely hear about it. But it's just doing a nice little consolidation correction period here. What I'd like to see is a a higher low and then um, the next rally take it above this level here. If you saw that, that would suggest to me that maybe real interest rates are bottoming and yep. uh, and, and that's going to provide a boost for the gold price and, and gold stocks. And the other thing, uh, which we pointed out before, this is the BlackRock Australia iShares core mm-hmm. composite bond ETF, which is a bloody mouthful. Um, <laughs> but this is, it's effectively a bond ETF, right? And yep. it's been bottoming for over a year now. And this mm-hmm. is a really, really solid base for it. You know whether this is a bond fund or a stock doesn't really matter. As a charting picture, mm-hmm. it looks like a solid base for this to start moving higher. It would only move higher in a recession slash falling mm-hmm. interest rate slash uh, not higher for longer environment. Yep. So it's still early days in this. Like you, you're seeing a big double low here, uh, another sort of higher low being formed formed here. But I think if the um, these prices can sort of maintain around these levels, move above these moving averages, then that's a good way to play the, um, I guess, you know, maybe coming recession and, and uh, not higher for longer, maybe lower lower for longer interest rate um, for longer. Uh, regime. So, yeah, that's just a few thoughts on uh, few thoughts on what's not priced in and, and, and what people can maybe start to think about uh, unfolding over the next three months. Yeah. Well, if you would indulge me, I actually have something that I think the market isn't really pricing in as well. Let's hear it. Okay. Well, I think, um, for example, we said that some people think that the threat to inflation, re-accelerating right now is energy or oil prices. I think the biggest threat that's not really being priced in is productivity. Um, and I think I mentioned this on a, on a business call a few last week, I think, and didn't really get a, <laughs> the reception that I was hoping for. But um, I yeah, think... I mean, I'm, sh- I'm shocked. I mean, productivity is normally such a you yeah, know interesting party topic. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think um, all of the like central banks and uh, the the research teams in the central banks, I think for the last year, they've sort of been dropping hints that they're worried about productivity and they want oh. productivity to pick up. And I think uh, Philip Lowe, who's now probably I think he's officially now no longer the the governor. Yeah, I think he's I think he's yeah. out the door. Yeah, I think so. So he's probably former... going to start talking the truth now. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, in his monthly statements after the policy decisions have been made by the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe always said that wages growth has picked up over the past year, but it's still consistent with the inflation target, provided that productivity growth picks up. So he always hammered home that point that productivity has to pick up. 
uh, if we should be content with inflation. But productivity clearly has not been picking up. In fact, it's been it's been dropping. Um, so I think the latest uh, ABS figures for this year. So we've worked six point eight percent more hours this year than last year, but labor productivity actually fell three point two percent in annual terms. So that's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, GDP per hour worked fell two percent in the June quarter alone, and is now down three point six percent year on year. And that brings me to this really interesting and exciting term called unit labor costs. And it sort of basically measures how expensive labor is based on productivity. So you don't really want to see unit labor costs going up because that pushes up services inflation. And clearly, while goods inflation has been coming down this year, services inflation has been the one that's remained sticky. And that's the one that central banks are worried about. And that's affected by unit labor costs. And that's been rising recently because productivity has been either down or flat. Um, and I think yeah, the ABA said that real unit labor costs rose 3.2% in the June quarter and are now up 5.8% for the year. And that's not really good news at all because I think um, Philip Lowe said in a committee hearing, I think a few months ago, that uh, if we're going to have 2.5% inflation, we cannot have unit labor costs persistently growing at 35 to 4%. And then he said, we have to have labor cost growth starting with a 2 and clearly our current labor growth cost does not start with a two, it starts with a five. So mm-hmm. um, well, let me ask you this, Kirill. Yep. If if unit labor costs are growing, i.e. the productivity of labor is weak, mm-hmm. what happens to the labor market in a slowdown? Well, I think I think obviously one way to do that, I think Philip Lowe is sort of saying we either have to increase our productivity quite a bit and I think historically even before the pandemic Australia's productivity has been either flat or pretty disappointing or obviously uh, wages I mean not wages but hours worked have to come down and uh, sometimes obviously yeah exactly which which is which is my point in many ways that um, the way that these things get resolved because productivity you just don't flick a switch and become more productive productivity is one of those really tricky things that no one really knows how to how to sort of um Mm -hmm. produce it but it comes from investing in new technology it comes from having good education systems that you know develop smart Mm -hmm. thinking productive people as they move in into the workforce you know there's a lot of Mm -hmm. longer term uh, intangible things that all produce productivity so you could argue over the last 10 or 15 years that maybe we, we've dropped the ball on that massively. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to improve productivity immediately from those things, yeah. but you can improve it by cutting your amount of workers if yeah. you can manage to still, um, you know, get things done with with less hours worked and with less people working. And that sounds like a, you know, like a pretty callous way to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what I'm getting at here is that if we don't have um, – all the, the fiscal stimulus mm-hmm. that's providing the demand and keeping people employed because that demand yeah. is still there, that will flow through into a higher unemployment rate. And yeah. um, companies that are dealing with low productivity, mm-hmm. one of the few ways that you can quickly deal with it is to cut uh, to, to, uh, to cut the, the number of people that, that are working with you, uh, working for you. So, um, you know, this... I guess says the same thing. You know, we're, we're looking at a potential slowdown, yep. uh, slowdown coming for these reasons. Yeah, and I think um, 
obviously at the moment uh, with the with the labor data, it's obviously a lagging index. And I think today the ABS released its latest employment figures. I think unemployment is still at three point seven percent, so it remained the same month on month. But I think the ABS did say that the labor participation rate rose a little bit, and that it's at a record high. So it's yeah, something has something has to give. Either productivity has to rise somehow, or I think businesses with rising costs might have to start cutting hours worked. Well, let's uh, let's check in on that in three months as well. I'll be tipping yeah. higher. Uh... Higher unemployment could be completely wrong, but see how we go. Put in your diary. What are we? Fifteenth of, uh, let's say, just before Christmas, roughly the fourteenth yeah. of December. Happy we'll, Christmas! Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll check in on that. Yeah. Well, I think. Did you see that uh, on the topic of productivity? I think there was a, a, a property developer, Tim, Tim something. He was. Oh, Tim Gurner. He's gone global. Yeah, he's gone global. He for has. saying that. <laughs> for saying that. Uh, employees should respect their employers more often and that there should be more pain in the economy. Yeah, I mean, talk about not reading the room. Some people mm. just, uh, you know, say the quiet bit out loud um, <laughs> in front of a big audience. So, yeah, I'm not, I don't, don't really know what to say about that. But, you know, in, in an environment where we've gone through cost of living crisis and to have um, someone who's clearly, you know, uh, not in any way bothered mm. by current cost of living issues say that we need more pain. It's just, it's just dumb. It's yeah. just dumb. <laughs> yeah. And I think he definitely hit a nerve because it's, it's gone global. I think uh, American politicians have been subtweeting him. So I get maybe for him, bad publicity is good publicity. Who knows? Wouldn't have thought so, but uh, yeah. you never know. <laughs> he, he's, he may have called for pain in the economy, but he's certainly inflicted pain on himself. So maybe he's yeah, halfway absolutely. there already. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I think uh, with that said, uh, we can maybe wrap up the episode. I think this was a, a great one. Lots of uh, ideas that are sort of what's not priced in goes down to the ethos. So thanks, Greg, for that. And, Absolutely. Um, no worries. Ca- catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Share. Oh, yeah. what, share. What's, what's your Subs- share, uh, like, please, subscribe? And please like, share, and subscribe. And leave the comments down below. That's it. Yeah. All right, no worries. Thanks, mate. Thanks, everyone, awesome. for uh, watching and listening. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by following us on your chosen platform and turn those post notifications on so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends, and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.